This is Revolution at Sea with John Curtis Perry. Episode 37, Postlude. You and I have voyaged together, snatching a look at maritime events, unfolding and exploding over the past half millennium. Thank you for your companionship. Within the context of episodic revolutionary change, we have considered the ocean as arena, avenue, and source. It seems that we are now launching into a new era in which politics is reflecting public reactions to the thrust of the great changes, especially globalization, to which oceanic revolution has made such a major contribution. As we move into an essentially unknowable planetary future, the ocean promises to be a continuing arena of intensified competition and conflict. Any retreat from globalization will heighten international competition and thereby deepen international tensions. As the major continental powers attempt to establish areas of dominance and claim their shares of saltwater space, portions of the ocean will remain contested territory. Sensitivity about ownership of that space will cause tensions to continue over the control of island chains and open sea routes, as well as access to possible new resources in the wider open ocean. The use of ocean as source will grow as we learn more about its riches and develop the tools to exploit them. World population is rapidly increasing, but fewer fish are available to eat. The amount of vertebrate sea life, including fish, has been reduced by more than one-third since 1970. We are consuming fish faster than they are reproducing. As wild fish veer toward extinction, they may be as uncommon as game in our diet. 17% of total animal protein that the world now eats is fish, much higher for those who live along the coast or on islands. And some 56 million people are supported in one way or another by maritime industries. Renewable energy derived from ocean-based wind farms best situated in shallow offshore waters, is growing. As technology improves, exploiting wave motion and temperature gradations to generate power will become commercially feasible and important. We're learning more about our own history from the findings of maritime archaeology opened by revolutionary new instruments. We are now mapping the depths of the ocean, and perhaps we shall soon discover more about this 70% of the globe 
than we know now about the surface of Mars. Exploration of the seafloor may yield discovery of hitherto unknown microbes, offering some hints as to the origins of life, as well as new materials for pharmaceutical and industrial uses. As for Ocean as Avenue, international trade is now declining for the first time since World War II, while the overall economy is growing, albeit sluggishly. Faith in the wealth-creating power of free trade is fading. Oceanic revolution made globalization possible. Automation has shaped its character. In our daily lives, we have seen the benefits of both phenomena. Global trade drops the cost of many goods like underwear, baby clothing, or electronic gadgets, making the life of the consumer more pleasurable. Manufacturing is still the largest sector of the American economy, and workers employed in major export industries like uh, airplane factories earn higher wages than those in domestically focused sectors. We often forget that trade is a two-way path and that we can be producers as well as consumers. But trade comes with no assurance that the benefits will be equally employed. In the developing nations, cheap imports have cost the existing industrial economy heavily in terms of jobs. Displaced workers, seeing themselves as victims, are forcing policy change. As many a worker in the developed world would say, more global trade is a good thing if we get a piece of the cake. But that's the problem. We're not getting our piece of the cake. People need jobs that pay decent wages. And it is easy to personify why such jobs are not available. A European notes that traditionally we looked across the water to find things that could be turned into money. Now, to many, abroad seems to offer more threat than opportunity. Britain's Brexit and America's Trump exemplify what is happening. Nations are turning away from the long post-World War II period of free trade when... As we have seen, prosperity increased trade and trade increased prosperity. The number of people who lose jobs in the global economy is dwarfed by the millions of consumers who enjoy the benefits of paying less for the goods they want. But the market has not compensated those who have lost out. It has not provided replacement for job disappearance. Cheap labor abroad or immigrants here seeming to compete for jobs cause nativism, the closing of borders, and racism to fester and explode. Rapidity of change causes profound anxiety, provoking powerful hostility. And so, Globalization is bringing a strong reaction from the many 
who feel left behind. People are easier to demonize than robots. And so, automation has not stirred the same rage. The inevitability of this phenomenon seems to have been accepted, if grudgingly. We have no Luddites smashing computers or slashing connecting cables. Yet, technological disruption has cost more jobs than foreign trade and will increasingly do so. A Dutch worker in a Rotterdam shipyard ruefully comments that of the 74 machines operating in the yard, 63 run on their own with no human intervention. In this instance, it's not cheap immigrant labor that is taking jobs away from fellow countrymen. American factories produce twice what they did in 1984, but with one-third fewer workers. Automation reduces the interest of companies in recruiting cheap labor, since those tasks are the first to be accomplished by machine. Thus, the incentive for advanced nations to manufacture overseas, wherever labor is cheapest, is diminishing. Robots capable of more and more sophisticated tasks will increasingly replace people. Driverless ships, for example. The challenge is for people to keep ahead of robots on the learning curve. Ocean will remain vital as an avenue, even if flows are less than their recent heights. Global trade is in constant flux, in a continuing search for new places for the cheapest production. Raw resources will still need to be moved from wherever they can be found to wherever they can be fashioned into goods. And those goods will move heavily by ship to wherever they may find a place in the global market. And yet, what does all this mean in terms of the environmental crisis increasingly with us? In the last century, global population of humans exploded in a growth without precedent in the biological history of any large species. Fossil fuel energy derived from intense carbon burning made this possible, exploiting what took millions of years to create. This burning has generated carbon dioxide, a gaseous compound trapping warmth in our atmosphere. The world ocean is absorbing more than 90% of the heat that is trapped by the greenhouse gases we are pumping into the atmosphere. Carbon absorption also makes the ocean more acidic, now at its highest level in millions of centuries. As the ocean warms, some parts faster than others, some fishing regions have been hard hit as fish look for places with their preferred temperatures. Higher temperatures are not only killing fish, but also the tiny plants they eat. 
and by the end of this century, the ocean may be too hot for phyloplankton to reproduce. These minute beings constitute half the organic matter on the planet and produce two-thirds of our oxygen. As we begin to explore the wonders of the deep and to realize the, as yet, unimaginable resources it may offer, we are also beginning to grasp the extent of oceanic pollution with plastic waste. One authority estimates at something like 8 million tons, forever floating in a Pacific jar the size of Texas. For wildlife, ingesting this can be fatal. With polar ice shelves fractioning and slipping into the sea, and chunks of Antarctica dissolving, and warmer water temperatures generated by the shrinking of sea ice, sea levels are inevitably rising. With salt water increasingly encroaching on the land, this means the contamination of inshore groundwater supplies, affecting the lives of coastal plants, animals, and ourselves. At worst, rising seas will alter coastal geography dramatically and perhaps abruptly with disruptive, worrisome, even catastrophic results. The economic cost of relocating coastal populations will be staggering, many of those people being clustered in some of our greatest cities like New York. Singapore may decide that it would be cost-effective to build a seawall around the entire country, but few cities have the financial resources or the geographical situation to consider this an option. Countries like Bangladesh will be at risk of survival, not to mention the Maldives or Pacific Islands, where the encroaching sea may make the first refugees to flee a vanishing nation. A rising ocean will give advantage to continental powers for whom coastal territories have not been of major importance. The Russians may well lose St. Petersburg to the sea, but Moscow and most of Russia will remain dry. For nations like it, with vast areas of arid or semi-arid land, insufficient fresh water will be the greatest challenge. Only a lunatic would try to predict the future in view of the forces of change now sweeping over the world. Environmental upheaval is erupting at a frightening speed, yet in the United States the stubborn refusal of many to acknowledge climate change thwarts the efforts of those convinced that we must take action before we reach the tipping point. The ocean remains integral to the concerns of humankind, nourishing our civilization in many dimensions for as long as it endures. For trader and manufacturer, statesman and warrior, poet and painter, for many, the ocean provides and inspires. 
for all of us, ocean requires attention and care. The future of human existence on the planet demands it. Yet, whether we will react sufficiently to the crisis remains to be seen. Thank you for joining us on our wondrous adventure in the exploration of the human history of the world ocean. This brings the Revolution at Sea series to an end, for now. But be on the lookout for special episodes to come. Before we say goodbye, we'd like to recognize all those who participated in the creation of this series. This podcast stems from John Curtis Perry's work as Professor of History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. His intertwined interests in the maritime world and in East Asia led, among others, to two of his courses, Maritime History and Globalization and International Relations of the China Seas. Upon becoming emeritus in 2015, Perry sought new ways to encapsulate the essence of his lectures and his approach to the art of the written and spoken word into new media for old and new audiences. Albert Buichade Faré, a former student and research assistant of Perry, proposed making a podcast series. A partnership quickly ensued with Albert becoming the producer, planning, organizing, piloting, editing, publishing, and promoting the series. Jamie Rosenberg, that's me, also a former student and teaching assistant of Professor Perry, soon joined the core team to introduce and close each episode and conduct his own recordings. 1623 Studios in Gloucester, Massachusetts, donated access to facilities and their staff's expertise to conduct the majority of Perry's recordings for the series. When the COVID-19 lockdowns struck, we were just short of recording a few final episodes. Charlotte Allard, Perry's granddaughter, went to his house and conducted the final recordings straight from there. Along the way, others helped. Wes Cunningham's expert advice greatly elevated the quality of the editing process, while Albert insists that any shortfalls are entirely Albert's own. Peter Herbert provided legal guidance, Christopher Wilkins provided musical advice, and an anonymous gift to the Institute for Global Maritime Studies provided funding. We would like to close with some personal notes. John Perry says, I would like to end by saying how much I have benefited from the participation of Albert, our producer, and Jamie, our introducer, in this podcast series. 
Our project embraces a widespread effort spanning time zones from Massachusetts, California, and Japan, demanding from them rigorous attention to a schedule, as well as uh, coping with the vagaries of recording. For me, exploring this new medium provided special delight. My great thanks to all of our team. Albert says, It has been a unique privilege for me to work with my esteemed professor, John Perry, and my talented friend, Jamie Rosenberg. I dedicate this work with love and gratitude to my wife, Akane, to my parents, Ramon and Presentacio, and to my dear son, Nico. May a more illuminated past brighten the path for you and the generations to come. I, Jamie, would like to add thank you to Professor Perry and to Albert for letting me join you on this journey. And thank you to every member of our audience for loving history. We have all worked to create this unique experience for you, the audience, friends, colleagues, former students, and new intrepid explorers. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed the journey. Goodbye. We make our recordings in this series freely available under the Creative Commons license Attribution Share Alike 4.0 International. Anyone is free to copy, distribute, and reuse them. Attribution to the original work is required along with an indication of any material changes to it. A courtesy notification of your plan to use our recordings is requested but not required. For all podcast matters, you can reach us at johnperrypodcast at gmail.com.